my dearest peace lovers and peacemakers. I'm Sarah Jamshidi with Matin Rukhsafat. Welcome to Peace Minded, the a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. Our guests that we we are so honored to have on Peace Mindedly are the people who are connecting cultures, bridging people and languages, and, and oftentimes trying to explain this connectedness. And we are absolutely thrilled and so honored to have our guests in, in Peace Mindedly. So you know the deal, we are live streaming our show on many social media channels and also on many podcast channels extremely easy to find us just type peace mindedly podcast and there you go we are there just in front of your eyes today's is the first tuesday of march and we are live streaming our show in Seattle, it's noon Pacific Standard Time. One of our guests, Professor Fatima Sadigi, is joining us from Germany, and Professor Aili Mari Tripp is joining us from DC. So Germany is around 9 p.m. and DC is around 3 p.m. And we are absolutely thrilled to have them. Before inviting them on the screen uh, to join the conversation, I would like to just explain the perhaps latitude of this program. Today, we are focusing on women and women issues, very, very specifically International Women's Day. So International Women's Day is just around the corner on March 8th. Many countries around the world uh, celebrate women's rights, women's issues, and Women's Day. And for, for the sake of this show, we are going to focus on one particular region. It's called Maghreb. Uh, Maghreb includes, uh, I believe, five countries, we are going to uh, focus on the three of the major countries, Morocco, Tunisia, and Algeria. And for that, we have two beautiful scholars. Before spending time explaining all of those, I really very quickly would like to explain what is International Women's Day and why we celebrate it, why we celebrate International Women's Day. This day is dedicated to celebrate women's achievement across the globe. And then and then it's a day to bond with sisters who are fighting against gender inequality and gender parity. Gender parity is a, st- a statistical measure, compares men and women in different areas, areas including include income, include work hours, and include education. And then by studying and comparing these areas, scientists oftentimes learn about the, the society's progress or regress on women's issues and women movement. And also gender parity helps lawmakers and politicians to perhaps draft law accordingly. And we are going to discuss that whether or not that serves women within their respected countries or not serve women within their respected countries. And then International Women's Day. In this day, uh, we draw attention to women who are celebrating women's achievement. And for that, I do have two amazing guests. Professor Aili Mari Tripp, I'm bringing her to the screen. Hello. Hello, Aili. Hi. Hello. Excellent. Is Wangari Matai Professor of Political Science, Gender and Women's Studies. She is also the Chair of Department of Gender and Women's Studies at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Tripp just published her latest book, Seeking Legitimacy, Why Arab Autocracies Adopt Women's Rights. 
She has received numerous awards and honors for the body of her work. Very welcome, Ailey. Very good to have you here. Thank you very much. Absolutely. May I ask you, please, when you speak, you speak a bit louder so then we have a clearer voice. Awesome. And I do have with me joining us Fatima Sadiqi. Yes, Fatima Sadiri. She is a professor of linguistic and gender studies at the University of Fez in Morocco. Also co-founder of the International Institute for Languages and Cultures. Sadiqi was selected by UNESCO as one of the 70 best worldwide public speakers on Middle East and North Africa women's issues. She has written many books, including Moroccan feminist discourse. Very welcome, Fatima. Thank you. Very Excellent. happy to be here. Thank you. Excellent. It's an honor. It's absolutely an yeah. honor. Okay, so I am super curious and I would love to know what happened, why you decided to, to focus on Maghreb and to focus on women issues and women's rights within the Maghreb region. So I wonder who would like to go first? Well, I could start. <laughs> absolutely. Yes, go ahead, Aili. I think my path was a little different than Fatima's, but uh, I um, I grew up in Tanzania. I lived there 15 years, and uh, my mother was an anthropologist, so I often went with her to do research. And it was among a very you know a local um, Muslim Saramo society. Uh, she was studying rituals and symbols, and so I went to many different uh, on weekends, going to initiation ceremonies and divinations and weddings and so on. And these were some of the poorest women in the world, but they led a very rich, symbolic and ritual life. And so I learned to appreciate things that many people overlooked because they only saw people as poor, but not as people with humanity that we had a lot to learn from. The Zoramo people that I worked, that we lived among, they cared about the old, they cared about each other. When you greeted somebody, you acknowledged their existence. When somebody was sick, you know, everybody participated in their healing through rituals because they saw healing as a social problem, not just a physical individual one. And so women played a, a central role in these healing ceremonies. Anyway, what got me interested eventually was um, how knowledge is created. And, and but it also gave me a real deep understanding uh, um, and a lasting interest in how diverse cultures I mean, appreciation for for uh, the diversity of culture. So uh, to make a long story, perhaps a little shorter, I continued then to do research when I, I eventually went to university and continued to do research in on uh, women's movements and women in politics in Africa, but primarily sub-Saharan Africa. So in Uganda, in Angola, in Liberia. Eventually, I wanted to also incorporate North Africa. Um, Partly because I had seen that in sub-Saharan Africa, many of the Muslim-majority countries were some of the earliest to promote women as political leaders. Uh, Tanganyika was one of the, had the main leaders of the independence movement were, uh, again, Muslim women from the coastal area, Bibi Titi among them. Uh, today, some of the countries in sub-Saharan Africa that have the highest rate of women in parliament, one of them is Senegal with 44%. So basically, everything happened way, way before you conducted the research. I mean, it started when you were with your mom in the region and just got got interested into, into just studying is basically what's happening. It was a beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing. Fatima, I wonder what is your story? So what happened that you 
you got interested in uh, women's rights and, and studying women's rights and women's movement in, in Morocco and Maghreb. Well, a mixture of a lot of things. Um, most importantly, I think, is the fact that I grew up in a Muslim Berber family. Uh, I have a rural background. And um, at school, I, as a girl, I learned that to be modern, I had to learn and uh, master French. And to be a good Muslim, I needed Arabic. So I became a linguist because I wanted to like find a place um, for Berber in my linguistic word, Berber Amazigh. My generation uses uh, Berber, my students now use Amazigh. We call ourselves Amazir, but I have no problem with uh, using the two. And um, well, at school, we didn't know anything about, we didn't hear, learn anything about Berber. So I became very much um, interested in finding out about Berber. And one of the things I found out is that just to join what Ailey was saying, there is the, the link between Morocco and Sub-Saharan Africa is Berber. Now, th that's one of well, that's one part. One may be related in a very complex way is the fact that I am a woman. So, as a girl, I I felt the difference. Of course, I mean, uh, I am the first woman to go to school in my family, and um, I realized how difficult it is. So. Uh, I internalized all that. And later on, when I, I got more uh, experience and more knowledge, I tried to link the two in my life, like Berber and women. And uh, that's how I became uh, more interested about North Africa. And most of what I learned was I, were not things I learned at school. Uh huh. The things that you didn't yeah. learn at school. So for the I had of... to, I had to talk. Sorry, to, to talk to women, my own family. I had to find out. Sorry to interrupt you. To uh, find out these things myself, and that's that's what made my life exciting, at least for me. Tell me. Yeah. Uh, so you had to find your way to explain things within your family. What do you mean? That is, why is it that I grew up thinking that I belong very proud of my ancestry, my grandfather and all that. And then suddenly I learned that I had to hide that for a long time because it's only recently that Berber became an official language. But what people don't know is the long struggle before. So for me, like the struggle for women's rights and struggle for Berber rights, they go hand in hand. Excellent. Language is very important, and and Berber was uh, was marginalized, just like women. And we had the new family law and Berber, an official language, almost synchronically. So Excellent. The so things, the two things, yeah, be, uh, are very clear in my mind that there is this relationship that I'm very much interested in. Awesome. As a, feminist linguist yeah. awesome so feminist linguist we are going to go back come back to this idea of so how words and meaning of words and inter interpretation of words really influence policy making and lawmaking within social political spectrum we are going to come back to that but Ailey, i am interested so in your opinion what do we gain what do we gain of paying specific attention to to women to women's rights and to women's movements so why why this can be an important issue for us you think 
Yeah, I mean, I think that we can all, especially looking at things comparatively and looking at things, um, looking at some of these issues across countries, we can really learn how other countries have and other parts of the world have have dealt with similar issues and how they've, um, you know, what kind of tactics and strategies they've used to to uh, improve the status of women. And uh, so it's a, you know, I, there's, there's a lot to there's a lot to be learned from each other. And I think that that's, you know, why I do comparative work. I don't focus always so much on one country, but I try to look at patterns across countries to see why some countries have done better than other countries um, in terms of uh, advancing women's rights. And so for the sake of controlling the sound and the sound quality from your side, there is because our um, equipment here is a bit sensitive. And from your side, uh, there is just probably uh, the um, scratch of papers or something that we can hear it on our end. So, yeah, I just wanted to mention that because we are recording, be, be mindful about that. You mentioned something, something important. We are comparing, in your book, you are comparing is what's happening in Algeria and Tunisia and Morocco. What are the similarities? What are the similarities between these distinct nations in terms of women's rights? Uh-huh. Well, one of the first things that struck me was that they were passing legislation more or less in sync at the same time around quotas for women in parliament, they were passing legislation around citizenship rights, um, the ability for women to pass uh, their citizenship to their children or to their husband. In the past, it was only men that could do that. They were passing legislation around violence against women. And what was interesting was that these things were happening almost at the same, not the same time, but a few years apart. And they were learning a lot from each other and borrowing from each other. And so a lot of this had to do with the fact that the women's movement, they were organizations of women, Collective Egalite Maghreb, that were working together and were coordinating and had a blueprint for, for, each, for, for the region. And so this is why, you know, they, it wasn't just only the women's movement, but their impact on their governments that allowed for many of these similarities uh, in, in timing of this of the, the legislation being passed, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. many of the similarities allowing this legislation to pass. So I um, I know Fatima that you are from Morocco, and yeah. you know the country really well, and also had comparative studies uh, within the Maghreb about what's going on in, in the region, and also you you know about the larger Middle East. I wonder is there similarities between what's going on in Maghreb and uh, probably the Middle East and women's movement in the Middle East? Uh, first of all, just to follow up with that, what Ailey uh, said, yeah, women uh, not only did that brilliantly, what Ailey said, that they uh, coordinated their efforts, but also they knew that their governments could not su- survive without their movement because of the history of, uh, of North Africa, of the region, which is, and here I uh, address your question, rather different from the Middle East. That's that's another thing that I learned uh, when doing research on Berber is that the Berber is actually what differentiates uh, North Africa from the Middle East. That's the main difference. And that's the only link with the Mediterranean and with Sub-Saharan Africa, which, I mean, we don't find in, in the Middle East. 
Now, the main difference, yeah, so there are differences. First of all, in terms of of, uh, women's rights, the Maghreb is at the forefront, but we should be very careful here. I mean, there is uh, what uh, I mean when I say women are at the forefront in terms of law, what's written on paper. Um, women are very heterogeneous. They are not homogeneous. There are differences of class, of education, of um, skills, of uh, social status, etc. We are di- we are divided by many uh, social categories. But as as a group, if you look at us as a group, I think that. North African women are at the forefront of women in the larger Middle East and North Africa. And that's one big difference between the two, the two regions, in addition to history. Because even, uh, I mean, if you look at the Islam of North Africa, it's different from the Islam of the Middle East. Absolutely. Because it had to adapt to the Berber tribal system. Adapt. Adapt. This is the main it point. Adapt. adapt. And yeah, then because this the Berbers is... were the indigenous populations. So they had and... to adapt to it. And the Berbers were the ones to spread Islam. And they are the, they're still the ones to continue doing that. But they give it this flavor, which is... Uh, indigenous and which can only be different from uh, so, so from the Middle East. Here is the question: Why adaptation? Why do Arab leaders in the Maghreb need to adapt women's rights within within their uh, sphere, whatever sphere that they are working? Ailey, this is this is the basis of your book. So why do they need to adapt? to women's rights, you think? Maybe before before Ailey yes. answers, if you don't mind. Yes. Uh, and I, I don't want to forget this. Uh, for me, the way I see it, Ailey is a social, social scientist. scientist. Uh, yeah. So adapt because Berbers, I forgot to mention that they are united by language, mm-hmm. but they are different, they are separated by religion before Islam. They, 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 they are different tribal ways of uh, worshipping God and goddesses and so on. So Islam had to adapt to that. It's just I wanted to make that uh, clear. That, uh, yeah. Islam needed to adapt to uh, the to Berber the way of living. To the Berber way of worshipping. Uh-huh, Berber way of worshipping. Yeah. So, the, so the goddesses disappeared god and goddesses but they had but they did not really disappear they went into our unconscious they're still living there so um uh, that's why women are important in berber cultures and they are very poorly known uh, but i mean leave women um apart outside in the public sphere islam had to be had to uh, because when arab let's say it, when arabs uh, reached north africa they didn't bring their wives so they had to marry indigenous wives okay we agree with that so i mean and the women are the ones who carry religion so religion continued uh, mm-hmm. with islam but islam had to adapt mm-hmm. if you see what i mean Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting. Fight the tribes for political reasons. And now we are talking about adaptation Pre-Arab, of Arab yes, autocracies to yeah. uh, to no, women's no, rights. No, this is history. This is history. This is history. Which, which we don't know, but which helps us. Uh, it helps us uh, understand the situation now. 
Mm -hmm. So we are going to go back to Berber and the power of word and power of language. But uh, we are talking about adaptation, Aili. And I would like to know, uh, so what happened? In one sphere, we are talking about how Islam adapts itself against this uh, new culture. And now we are talking about how Arab uh, leaders need to adapt to women's rights. So why do we need this kind of flow? I think that what you know, one of the things that I I was looking at was more from a sociological perspective or, or political science perspective, um, and looking at some of the differences that have emerged as a result of these uh, adaptations that took place in the Maghreb and how they're very different than some of these some of what's evolved in the Middle East, even though there's similarities in religion and in language and in they all had colonial histories and so on. Um, so there's many similarities between the two regions, the Maghreb and the Middle East, but also many important differences. And one of the areas where there are differences have to do with the, some of the laws that have been adopted in the Maghreb countries. So, for example, even though there are still important limitations in family law in both regions, one sees much you know, much bigger, big differences between the regions in, in family law, for example. So in... Um, the only countries in the Middle East and North Africa that have that have limited polygamy are are Tunisia, Morocco, and Algeria. And Tunisia already in 1956, but it's but it's restricted in Morocco and Algeria. Um, Algeria and Tunisia allow women to pass their citizenship, like I said, to their husbands and children. In Morocco, it's it's they can pass the citizenship to their children. Uh, women can travel outside of the the country in these three countries. But in the rest of the region, they in the in the Middle East, they have to get permission from their husbands, with the exception of Lebanon and now Saudi Arabia. Uh, the same thing: the abortion laws are more lenient in these three countries. Although Tunisia is the only one that allows for abortions without restriction. Tunisia same- allows Tunisia allows abortion without restriction. That's amazing. Yeah, they got it the same year that we did in the U.S. Oh, my God. Uh, Maghreb countries, they also have very extensive legislation around a comprehensive legislation around violence against women. Uh, and again, it's the only these are the only countries that have that. So it's a, it's a big difference uh, when you move into politics and look at the and overall the leadership. OK, United Arab Emirates has now recently has now 50 percent women in the parliament. But overall, if you look at the numbers of women like in Tunisia, 49 percent of the local councils are have women. If you look at the cabinet, if you look at the parliament, overall, the, the Maghreb countries have done better and, and they, they came into this earlier than the Middle East countries. So it's a big difference. And so it's it, one can't just lump this whole region, everything together. And I think a lot of it has to do, I mean, it's, I think the, the Berber factor is one element of why, we, why we've seen this difference. I've looked at more contemporary reasons, how they evolved then and how they manifested later on. One thing that really struck me when I was reading the book was the the fact that uh, there was influence of colonial power in the region, French colonial power, as much as I understood. So I, I, I was wondering what was the French influence in the region and how really shaped helped or not helped in terms of women's movement in the region? Miley, go ahead. Okay. Um, well, in terms of not helping, one of the things that the French did, and Fatima knows this better than I do, but they had different laws for the Berbers, for the Arabs, for the French. And so the, the, the legal system made it almost impossible to reform family law. So one of the first things that 
all three countries did almost you know around the same time after independence was to create a unified legal system and a unified laws. And this laid the basis then for later on, allowing for changes in the personal status code, much more extensive changes than you would find in the, in the Middle East countries. It wasn't the only, it wasn't the only reason why we saw these changes, but it was an important one. Uh, in terms of other factors, I think that Fatima can speak better to, there was a the feminist movement was influenced very much. Many people traveled to France and were influenced by French feminists and French socialists that had some impact. Um, but also one could maybe talk about the, there's an extensive migration between this region and, and Europe and France in particular, and maybe there were influences in, in that regard as well. But I will defer to, <laughs> to Fatima. Yes, so Fatima, yeah. would you think that clo uh, uh, French colonialism yeah. helped your hurt? I think, uh, no, I think the... The, the French colonizers uh, colonized, let me say, the French colonized Morocco through language, through mm -hmm. education. When they put, uh, when uh, French became obligatory in primary education, the first year I went to school was French Arabic. So uh, that, was the, the, that was the way that the French used to colonize through education, through language. That's one thing. The other thing is that it's true that for the first generation of Moroccan educated men and women, the French socialist intelligentsia was like a role model because they put a lot of pressure on their governments so that their governments gives uh, independence to the countries of the Maghreb. That's something, uh, I am not saying that colonization is never a good thing, but I'm trying to understand why is it that um, uh, the first Moroccan intelligentsia was really influenced by the French socialist academics and writers and uh, artists and so on, because they were anti, they, were, uh, they put pressure on de Gaulle at that time, uh, Charles de Gaulle to uh, grant independence to Moroccans. So far as women are concerned, the French language, because it is stripped from its database, is, is stripped from religion, like Arabic, so French was, it was easier for women to say taboo words in French, to express sexuality in French. That's why many, um, uh, many writers, the first writers, Mernice is one of them, uh, they used French. And when she was asked on television, why do you write in French? I mean, French colonized your country and you are not French. She said, well, I didn't go to French. French came to me. And another intellectual, I think he was from Algeria, he said, I think it's Katib Yassin. They asked him, why is it uh, that you write in, in French and all your writings <coughs> are uh, against colonization? He said, I write in French so that the French know that I am not French. <laughs> Exactly. So oftentimes when I get too, so angry, I, yeah. I try to speak in English and not <laughs> in Farsi because in English I can control my anger compared Husband to Farsi. Husband and wife do that all the time. Comes out. <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to ask this question and we go to mid-program. It's um, an example that uh, plays into the power of words. 
and why words are important in uh, probably in politics and social uh, social platform. So I'm going to give you a very specific example. Back in Tehran, I was working for Zan newspaper. Zan in Farsi means woman. And then the head of the newspaper for the first time ever in the Middle East region was a woman. That woman, Faeze Hashemi Rafsanjani, Faeze was the daughter of the late former reformist president. She was also the parliament representative. It was this big, big argument. And she, she was she a was woman advocate, she was a woman activist, and she was just doing so much in, in the arena of moving women's rights forward by drafting laws, by putting forward lots of activism and so forth. And Zan newspaper was one of those. So I was working with Faiza very, very closely going to parliament, covering all of those stories about women and so forth. So it was this big argument in the parliament at the time. We are talking about 1997, 98, 99, that um, especially in 1997, they were just uh, women were trying to figure out whether or not the Iran's political hierarchy allowed them to nominate themselves for presidency. And they were arguing over one particular word one word. That one particular word was Rajol. Rajol yeah. in Arabic means man and Rajal means men. So they were arguing, probably many women, they were arguing that so when we have Rajol in constitution, it means human. Doesn't mean man. So therefore, women can nominate themselves for presidency. It's not only in male's domain. And men were saying that, no, no, this is Arabic, this is from Quran, and this is, it relates to men, and only men can be president. So it was a big, big discussion. I want to, by, by just playing out this example, I just want to know, in your opinion, how much words and language really plays out in terms of giving meaning or challenging some of the status quo uh, within the this, this women's movements that we are talking about in Maghreb. Fatima, I go with you okay. first and then yeah. with, with Aili. Well, words are like human beings and they don't have the same status. Some words uh, travel from culture to culture with no problem, like television, for example, television in, in French. Uh, every Moroccan knows what it is. Every Moroccan knows what television means, what radio means, etc. So some words travel, no problem with that. But some words have a lot of semantic baggage in them. And one of them is gender. Gender this word, I mean, like human beings, I mean, it's stopped at the frontier and uh, it's searched and sometimes it's accepted, sometimes it's not. The same thing with feminism. I think that words are very important because now we are struggling with what to call feminism in Arabic. Until now, we don't have, like uh, we say, Nasawiya, Niswaniya, Jinsaniya. Jins, it has some sexuality there, so people, uh -huh, they don't like it. So that's that's where why French helped a lot there. So. Um, when you use Arabic because it's the language of the Quran, the language of the religion, it's not easy to 
to express. Now, the rajul that you uh, struggled with, but there is another word in Arabic, which is insan, that's person. It's mm-hmm. both men and women. So uh, the insan is both men and women. So there are, there are some very good words in Arabic that really serve our purposes, but some of them, a gender, a gender is a linguistic term. It started with grammarians, um, masculine and feminine gender. But when it uh, became associated women, women's rights and gender and so on, it became a problem. It, it's a complex word. And uh, until now, I mean, uh, it's no, it's no HTML. People don't know what to call it. And when you use gender, then it's like you are copying the West, the West in general, I know, the mainstream West. So uh, we have uh, the pro- a problem with these words. So w- words, they carry concepts. In them. They are the, the window of a much bigger thing behind. And that concept, uh, there's history in it, there's religion in it, there is belief, there is yourself. We relate to, to words in, 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 in very uh, complicated and complex ways. That's why I, I remember when we wanted to um, to reform the the family law the time that was spent on just choosing the right word took much more longer than uh, actually the ishtihad looking at the text and trying to find different meanings because how to package it that's the problem and even the king when he presented the family law the way he packaged it in i am not going to make something that's islamic illicit or make something illicit, illicit or something that is he used the proper language and everybody agreed on that Uh, whereas a socialist before him during the first socialist government he was very blunt and he went into gender feminism and so on without uh, talking about religion it was refused actually it, it instigated started a big row debate between the Islamists and the secularists. So especially at this age, after the so-called Arab Spring, every word means something, every word. You cannot imagine, even when I speak now, I have been writing on Berber for a long time, but uh, even today, I mean, people would stop me and say, no, 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 don't use that word. And they would go into giving you like uh, uh, 10 or 20 arguments why. So you see, so words are important in a multilingual setting like uh, the Maghreb. Excellent, excellent. And we are talking about the power of words. Aili, what was your experience? Well, actually, I would like to draw some parallels with the U.S. because it's an issue here, too. Um, We've had long debates in in the feminist movement around using terms that some say, oh, you can just use the word congressman or fire fireman. But again, um, it, it, there's a certain weight that comes with that and, and a, an association that only men can be in politics or only men can take certain kinds of jobs like being a firefighter. And so there's been a, a gradual acceptance of the term firefighter instead of fireman, congresswoman and, and congressman um, here. And it's, and it, but it comes from the same issue that Fatima was talking about, that that these words have power and they have meaning and they have associations and those associations create realities <laughs> in and, and create gender gendered for example gendered professions changing the language makes people more conscious of the inequalities and the divisions of labor and the exclusions that women face 
you just gave an example in the U.S. that how we are trying to deepen a meaning with words. I wonder if in your research, did you come across any phrase or words that you thought uh, has been debated for a long time in the Maghreb, Ailey? I think that Fatima is the, the linguist here, <laughs> and I think she has better examples than yeah. on that this well, is area. Yeah, well, spontaneously, the word North Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, until now, yeah, it's, uh, because in the U.S., I think it's Northern Africa, which uh, which maybe is the use. I had this experience when I was writing Women Write in Africa. We didn't know whether we should call it North Africa or Northern Africa. And we were Maghreb, but also U.S. scholars working together. And uh, North Africa. And when I go to the U.S., and the one thing I always ask, why aren't there enough North African studies in the U.S.? That's why a book like Ailey's makes me personally very happy, uh, knowing that people out there are uh, writing about North Africa. Val Mugaddam also from Iran, she is interested in, in, in it. And Munira Sharra, these women, for me, I mean, it's not because Ailey is here. It's just personal. I uh, say to myself, it's like I'm discovering Berber, that, 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 this nice, fan, fantastic enchantment. So people are talking about North Africa at long last, because in a very recent experience, I don't want to say what it is, I had this uh, this long discussion with a very established uh, American scholar about why is it uh, she didn't want to have North Africa, there's just the Middle East, mm-hmm. and yeah, and it, it, I don't know. So it's this word, which mm-hmm. I am, I wish I can live enough uh, to see North African studies have um, more, more dignity in academia. In, inshallah. In we yes. say inshallah. US Academy. <laughs> I, I know that, yeah, they're prospering in Europe, but in, in uh, because maybe I write in English, I would love to see the world having it, the dignity it merits, it deserves in the study. Because there are things there. A lot of people are interested, but we need some kind of movement that would have this, uh, not a movement, but uh, I am hopeful that uh, maybe sometime we will have African studies, North African studies. There there are lots of people who have done the wealth of of literature in the region itself about women in the region and the women's movement and women, I mean, in politics, there's a lot written, but it's in the region and people don't know about it outside. And I'm just wondering, you know, is it a language issue? Because is that is it partly because French and and uh, Arabic dominate and and also Berber dominate so much the the Maghreb? Is that why it's it's somehow cut off from? It's I, I, it's because of this term of decolonization. Mm-hmm. They want it to be in the native language. Mm-hmm. But then, uh, I mean, for someone who wants to bridge between cultures like myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm. I think it's good to translate. It's good to have all these languages, mm. but it's from different points of view. Without, uh, I mean, meaning any harm or anything. They just, um, but there's a lot, a lot of information in in, in the books uh, that are written in Arabic. You cannot imagine, yeah. or French, 
mm-hmm. especially Arabic. I am looking now at Islamic feminism and what's written in Arabic is really some fantastic. Mm-hmm. But we need, we need, I think that if there is, this is my own naive point of view, if there is recognition of these things as outside, I mean, uh, things will move. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe, but we need, I agree with you, Ailey. I mean, it's, there's a lot of things we need to make visible. There's mm-hmm. no visibility. About, uh, what, uh, and a lot of young people, what are they writing, what they write about these things. So, uh, yeah. Excellent. Let's keep our fingers crossed. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so please stay okay. tuned with me. You are watching Two Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. This show is, we are live streaming our show on many social media channels, very easy to find on many uh, podcast channels, very easy to find. And also, if you do miss a podcast, please visit Goldtune, G-O-L-T-U-N-E, goldtune.com. It's a website, a peace journalism website that I run with a talented group of editors and correspondents to cover peace journalism. When you go to Goldtune, make sure to sign up for our newsletter. We send out weekly newsletters about uh, our show and about what's happening within our peace journalism if you will. And then also please feel free to submit your questions and comments. We are here to feature them and uh, present them to our guests. So coming up next Tuesday, we are talking to Medina Tenur Whiteman, author of The Invisible Muslim, Journeys Through Whiteness and Islam. Medina's memoir and autobiography about her experience growing up white and Muslim in Europe is also, according to a Publishers Weekly is a very honest account that is gaining momentum uh, within the readers who are interested in learning about convert, uh, converting to Islam and also what, is, what it really means to be a Muslim from a non-Middle Eastern or non-Arab or non-Turkish background. So I think it's, uh, I mean, I'm reading the book and quite enjoying it. For the following Tuesday, we will discuss terror and hope, the science of resilience with filmmaker Ron Burke and scientist Rana Dajani. The movie follows scientists and humanitarians as they combine research know-how and established care methods to heal serious and refugee children traumatized by devastating stress of war. So Dr. Dajani is using a very advanced medical research to measure ways in which kids are uh, responding to the stress against the war. And then throughout uh, her study, she found that uh, these kids are developing a a method, so to speak. We are going to talk about method and what they do, but a method to be resilient and still stay happy, even within the in, in refugee camp and after too much loss in in their lives. So we are going to learn a great deal about about this study. And right after that, we are talking with Olga Meking, author of Nixon, embracing the Dutch art of doing nothing. And don't you love that, the art of doing nothing? You know this guilt-free 
of doing nothing and not taking yourself and anything too serious. I think we, we truly, we truly need in this pandemic and it's what's going on outside. We do need to just, you know, be a bit more relaxed and, and not take anything and everything too seriously. So I think we are going to have so much fun talking with Olga. Back to this hour, we are talking to Eileen Mari Tripp, Chair of the Department of Gender and Women's Studies and author of Seeking Legitimacy, Why Arab Autocracies Adopt Women's Rights. And Fatima Sidigi, linguist and specialist in gender and women's studies and author of Moroccan Feminist Discourse. Okay, ladies, so I, I would like to know in your opinion, what has been Islam's influence in the region and how women really took that influence to interpret within their, within their women's movement? I, I want to know the Islam influence in the region. So who would like to go first, I wonder? I'll let Fatima go. Okay, yeah. Fatima, go, that's, go ahead. That's an easy question for me because um, it so happened that Together with students, I think 12 or 13 students, we conducted a big survey in the, in the Fez region with the simple question, what does Islam mean to you? So we, we talked to non-literate women, so we had to ask them orally. We prepared questionnaires for educated ones. We interviewed um, some authors and so on. And the gist of that, if uh, according to what uh, we we analyzed the, the, the questions, etc., the answers, and the Islam means faith for many women as a personal relationship with God, Allah. It means faith for biggest person, the biggest portion of women. It means culture. I am born Muslim. It's like the color of my skin. There's nothing I can do about it, whether I go to the mosque or not. If uh, it's not, a, it's, that's not the question. But if you uh, say that I am not Muslim, I may take it as an insult. This is um, sort of summing it up. Or politics, you, uh, you use Islam to uh, get political power. So it means all these things. But um, one thing, I mean, surveys are what they are. But Islam, I mean, historically and uh, today, it, it has a big influence uh, on women, uh, on society, on the feminist movement, on the feminist discourses. It's I don't, I don't think there has been a feminist who attacked Islam directly. So Islam is accepted. It's just the way you deal with it, uh, whether uh, you deal with it as um, there are women who take it as they, they don't practice, but it's a human right. It's uh, religious freedom. I want to be Muslim, full stop. And uh, there are people who want to separate between the two, but we are in a very comfortable position where the king is at the same time the highest political and religious uh, power. So uh, what I'm talking about is what happens at the level of society, not at the level of, uh, of politics. Excellent, excellent. Aili, why would you think that we should care about what's going on within the Maghreb region in terms of women's rights? Why should we care about? We should care about people all over the world. And uh, I think that in, um, you know, there's so, because there's so many interesting things happening uh, in this region, I think that it's, it's and like we said before, it's it's been perhaps um, less exposed to the rest of the world. And so I, 
Um, I think it's it's really important, but I think it's also important as Americans because here, if you listen to the discussion about the Middle East and, and North Africa and, and Muslim countries, people just generalize. They throw everybody everything into one big boat, and they talk about the Muslim world and the and the um, you know Arab world as though it's just one big entity. And there are huge differences. And so even in this in this issue of Islam, um, even he, even here, you'll find that um, even though people, there aren't, when, when you look at the, for example, Arab barometer surveys and compare the regions, there aren't big differences in adherence to Islam and, and praying and, and going to mosque and so on, but between, between the Maghreb and Middle East. But you do see differences in, again, in the legal realm. So, What for, are the differences in legal realm? Yeah, so, for example, you have almost all of the constitutions in the Maghreb, I mean, sorry, in the Middle East, are have the, the Islamic law as the basis of the law. And even though the law in the Maghreb countries is influenced by, in particular, Maliki law, a school of Islamic law, it it, the constitution is the basis of the of the law, and, and in particular, law that has to do with the family family law and, and personal status code. So that's a big difference. The only other countries in outside of these the Maghreb countries are Lebanon and Iraq, and those are the only two other countries that that have the constitution as the basis of of law. So it's a it's a you know it's a difference, and it and it it has implications for how family law is is modified and changed it's much easier in in these three countries so we are saying that constitutional law if the, these countries are not based on the constitutional law what are their based uh, for their argument against women's rights it's not so much against women's rights but it's it 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 has to do with the way that they see you know the polygamy for example <laughs> or the right of inheritance and so on. It's much more, much more restricted. I would say even the issue of inheritance is still an issue in the, in the Maghreb, um, but it's becoming, at least it's being discussed and it's being challenged and women's organizations are taking it up now in a way, in a way that you don't see in other parts of the the, the Middle East. Mm -hmm. So I just want to make sure that I am just listening and learning and reading. Just wanted to make sure that I understood. So when we are saying, uh, you were saying that these countries, these Maghreb countries, some of them, their laws are based on constitutional law. Mm -hmm. and some of them are not based on constitutional law. So if, our, if they are not based on constitutional law, what are they based on? So yeah, various interpretations of various, yeah, Sharia, Sharia law, but Sharia law. interpretations of it. it. It does influence the constitution in these other countries as well, and in particular the Maliki school. But mm -hmm. what I'm saying is that it's not the basis the way it is in in the, the most of the Middle East countries. And so, you know, it has it has implications for the, the ability to change laws. Um, it's much harder to change laws that would affect women, women's personal status. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Excellent. So I would like to bring Fatima into our discussion. And I'm thinking, is what Aili is saying true? Is this going to really make it difficult to change women's status if we are arguing about it? Did I understood it? Uh, did I understand correctly? So is it going to make it more difficult for women? Well, I can speak for Morocco. <clears throat> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Morocco, the, the family law is based on 
the constitution on Maliki law, but also on the French, Napoleonic, whatever, the, the French law. And um, uh, what was sidelined was the, the Berber law. Okay, mm -hmm. we created a problem during whatever the Berber, the Dahir, etc. But the, the constitution, I think it's it's a mixture of the constitution and and the law because the law is how we, how you interpret Sharia. That's what law is, and the family law is at the center of that. When you talk about Sharia about ishtihad interpretation, it means that uh, you adopt uh, some Sharia, but the last word is, is constitution. But it does not mean that the law does not exist. It's still there. This is what I think. But we, because we have been struggling with with the law since independence, mm -hmm. so we I wonder. I wonder. Uh, I, I wonder. So when the revolution was happening in Iran, it was just this big discussion about a women movement, uh, uh, changes in family law, changes, and then mm -hmm. everything all of a sudden started. I mean, the the political hier hierarchy started talking about Sharia law influencing and injecting Sharia law within the constitution and just basically drafting a new constitution. So I wonder in your opinion, why, why family law and women get the most attention when these things, these changes happen? Because that's the basis of the community first. Uh, Second, mm -hmm. but because it's the, it's the weakest, I would say, space uh, in which you can make this confusion between sharia and fiqh fiqh is uh, islamic jurisprudence mm -hmm. that's that's the place where you can really put the two there and leave them uh, very confused uh, there but when you separate them sharia what is sharia if you open a dictionary sharia means a path that leads you to water that's what it means. Mm -hmm. It's just guidelines. But uh, fiqh, the, the law is man-made. It's how how men, especially men, uh, interpreted Sharia. And now what women want, they want also their uh, their share of this interpretation. This is what they want. They say because, I mean, if a woman was involved in, in the making of the law, we wouldn't have had polygamy, at least. Exactly. So it, it's a man's... The, the law, the fiqh is a man's patriarchal way of seeing the world. Not in bad faith, but that's, that's a, it's a traditional, it's very... But the, the problem is that we are still using it now, but society has changed. Women now are breadwinners. The, the authority of a man as qiwama, that is having the authority, has changed. Women, The moment women started to have a salary, the whole thing crumbled. I mean, the, these things that the, the uh, ancient fuqaha are saying. That's why this is this is what I like about Islamic feminism, which uh, not everything in it, I mean, uh, speaks to me. But I like uh, the fact, and I, I would support the fact that it's it's high time women. <clears throat> I cannot do it because you you need to be um, knowledgeable of that. But if women are think they are apt to go into this and have this ishtihad interpret why not mm -hmm. this is the domain which is still male dominated and they think that's where our problems come from mm -hmm. but this is not the end of the story i think we need a reform of islam also 
We need what? And they will make it even more complicated, a reform of reform. Islam, a reform of the law, a reform of Arabic. Because mm -hmm. Arabic is not a mother tongue. I'm talking mm -hmm. about written Arabic. It's a language I love. I like it. It's not a mother tongue. It's women in Morocco and the region love it. They pray in it. But who understands it? You have to be educated to understand. And to understand the language of the law. I have to know the Arabic. Yeah. yeah. So we have, this is where um, work needs to be done. Mm -hmm. So Arabic Islam. Mm -hmm. We cannot just ignore them. They are there. It's, mm -hmm. We have to work on them. As so, a society and as politicians and as rulers. Yes. So, I mean, I cannot stop listening to you because I'm learning tremendously. I want to know Eileen's take of why in the any major changes, uh, the family law and women get attacked so severely. I think that it's very much like what Fatima said, that the family, and if you look at all the constitutions in the MENA region, say that the family, start out with the family is the basis of the law. So it's a, it's a, it's a central institution. Um, but it also symbolize, I think that the family and, and women in particular, they sim they stand in and they symbolize a lot of things. And, and uh, they represent more than just women or women's rights. It's it's also a, stands in for attitudes towards modernity, towards towards people's understanding of progress. Uh, and so we're, when we talk about women and women's rights, we're talking about a lot more than just women. <laughs> and uh, and so that's why I think also that you find that um, what what surprised me very often was that you would go to an event and you'd see almost as many men. Fatima, for example, has organized big, huge uh, fora of of all people from all different parts of the women's movement, feminist movement, all different, and brings them all together every year to talk about a certain topic. And you'll find you know, a large number of men there. Um, she's educated. She was one of the pioneers in educating and doing it, working in gender and women's studies in Morocco. And I run everywhere I went in Morocco, I'd run into her students and half of them were men, <laughs> maybe even more. <laughs> But it's not, and so I, and the reason, and I ask myself, why? Why so many men are interested? And I think it's because, because it has it has to do with more than just women. <laughs> that it has to do with the society as a whole and its future and where it's going. And so, I mean, at least I think that's part of the explanation. But we've Fatima and I've debated this also. <laughs> um, why why that's the case? Excellent. Um, Excellent. So the, the book Seeking Legitimacy, Why Arab Autocracies Adopt Women's Rights is the new book. Uh, it's out. You are watching to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. For this hour, we talked to Professor Eileen Mari Tripp. Professor of Gender and Women's Studies and author of Seeking Legitimacy, Why Arab Autocracies Adopt Women's Rights, and Fatima Siddiqui, linguist and specialist in gender and women's studies with the focus on North Africa and larger Middle East. You know the deal for our show? At the end of every program, we ask our guests to share uh, something meaningful about peace, kindness, and compassion. 
uh, a statement, a childhood story, a story, prayer, whatever that they feel uh, they would like to share. One of the reasons, as I explained, I grew up in revolution and war and, uh, and I've seen many, many war scenes. So I truly believe that what we are going through with the pandemic, it's a warlike situation. And during the war, we need... We need and we must have peace and we need kindness. Therefore, we are projecting peace and kindness in our program. I would like to start with Fatima and then I go with Aili about sharing something meaningful about peace. Yes, Fatima. Ah, something meaningful about peace. Peace, uh, well, I think with this pandemic and um, as a follow-up of this very nice discussion that uh, the three of us had today, I think that uh, this is for me a peace. I mean, when you, you, when you speak to people across religion, across difference, across a lot of things, and, uh, and you make yourself understood and you understand, for me, that gives me a lot of personal peace. And uh, personally, I find a lot of peace in researching these things. And uh, in the pandemic, I have read more books than before. So I hope, I mean, this makes some sense. Absolutely. Thank you, Fatima. Aili. Yes, Aili. Yeah, I would just leave you with a question. Why is it, and I've done research in throughout Africa and, uh, and different parts, like I said, in, in North Africa, and one of the things that I've discovered is that women have this tremendous capacity to work across differences, uh, ethnic, religious, racial, different class differences. And I've seen this, you know, all, all over in, and you've seen it in yet Libya and Yemen, in Syria, um, but also Liberia, Uganda and uh, Angola. And so my question is, you know, why women? Why, why have women, why do women have this capacity it's not everywhere, but but we see it's often enough that um, it's worth asking the question. So thank you. Absolutely. So I do again uh, seeking legitimacy why Arab autocracies adopt women's rights. Aili Mari Trip, it's it's been an honor to have you, and also Fatima Sadiqi. Thank you very much. I enjoyed the discussion, and it was very rich. Thank you so much. Good afternoon. Good night. Goodbye. Khoda Hafiz. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.